called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the Renault, sinking in our fight. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer. Don't you remember? He built this kitchen. He built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I am so lucky to be able to live, work, play and broadcast to you live on Radio Karim from this amazing place. And this Wednesday night, the warm weather has really turned up for us and I'm sure everyone across the Long Beach down at the beach enjoying themselves but still tuning in this evening to Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash on Radio Karam. If you have any questions tonight, text us in on the studio on 0493 213 831 and join in on the conversation with us because that's really what the last couple of weeks on this program have very much been about. Last week, with my guest Christine Phillips, we discussed the upcoming referendum and I hope you were able, listeners, to have a bit more thought since then and really we're coming into the last week where many have probably made up their mind or are about to make up their mind and especially with the events of the last few days, we're really called into a place to think about what kind of a country we want to live in, what kind of an Australia we want to have and I hope You'll join me in voting yes because I would love for our country to move forward together in a way where minorities feel safe and feel listened to and feel included. So let's get on with the show tonight. My guest this evening is Susanna Waldron, an architect and director of Searle by Waldron Architecture, a Melbourne architecture studio focused on designing innovative public and community projects. Co-founded in 2007 with Nick Searle, the studio began a simultaneous focus on both large-scale international competitions and small-scale local public projects. The practice, the practice is interested in the potential for civic architecture to do more and be a specific response to place. Applying the same design ambition across varying scales and types, Searle by Waldron Architecture considers how each project is an opportunity to investigate material specificity and transform a wider urban context. The practice has worked in several high-profile civic, cultural and education precincts, 
their built work explores a contemporary approach to altering existing buildings and contexts. The studio has been recognised for its design approach, receiving numerous Australian Institute of Architects awards for public architecture, heritage and small architecture projects. Susanna has led the design of award-winning projects for the Art Gallery of Ballarat Annex, Maidenstone Tennis Pavilion, Joyce Chapel Bridge, a recent winner, and competition-winning projects for Mocape Museum in Shenzhen, UN Habitat Mobility Centre, and Point Grey in Lawn. Prior to establishing her own practice, Susanna worked for International Design Practices OMA in Rotterdam and DRMM in London on a variety of high-profile public projects ranging from master planning to civic buildings, public housing, education and retail design. She is a regular guest speaker, critic and panel member at university and industry speaking events, including previous presentations at the AIA National Architecture Conference on Risk, Design Speaks Architecture Symposium, and is a current member at RMIT School of Architecture and Design's Industry Advisory Committee. That's a very long bio and I love it. And I think it was very important for the listeners to hear to hear that as we get it stuck into our conversation about public work this evening. So welcome to the program, Susanna. Good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Alana. Um, yeah, that was that was quite a long kind of bio. Not my favourite thing, but um, that's who I am. So here I am. Good to be here. And it's important for us to lean into all those all those truths and I'm sure the listeners are hankering to get to know you a bit better as well. I'm wondering, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? I did know you were going to start with this and I was trying to think about it. It's a bit of a blur of Canberra things for me because I grew up there. I was born there and I lived there until I was about seven. Um, and I think um, there's the obvious things like my parents' house, but it wasn't particularly architectural. So I thought I'd mention a couple of things. One is like, remember catching the bus? We lived in Belconnen. Um, in Higgins in Belconnen, so sort of out in the suburbs. And um, Canberra in the, like, 70s had built these kind of, which are quite iconic now, these little cylindrical bus shelters with very kind of cute little circle, circular orange windows. Um, and I can kind of remember actually being on the bus and kind of waiting for the bus in those things and it was kind of, they were like cubbies for kids, um, but really kind of, you know, unique little pieces of public architecture. So that's one thing. And then I think also the Carillion, which is this very strange, I don't know if you know the Carillion in Canberra, it's right on Lake Burley Griffin. It's like this enormous tower that plays um, melodic tunes like every hour or two. Um, so it's sort of a giant bit of civic whimsy, I would say. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, and you can you can have a nice picnic near there and kind of like hang out with your family, but it always kind of captured my imagination as a kid too. So Canberra. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned those because the first project of yours that I was introduced to was the Mainstone Pavilion, Tennis Pavilion, and it's tiny. It's a toilet mm-hmm. that's absolutely gorgeous and it's basically this object in, in, in its site, which in many ways is a folly except this service is a public amenity and it's attached to a, a tennis club and a tennis pavilion. Yep. And much like your actually University of Melbourne end-of-trip facilities – also exists on this semi-industrial, semi-skyscraper institutional site down in South Bank as a folly, an object in the landscape. 
was that a conscious for you that you keep returning to these these little objects, these little gems? Are we not like I think as architects we have these threads, right? Threads of interest that kind of pull us to different things. Um, yeah, I, I think the more projects I do, I start to realise they're all kind of connected. So they're connected for me because most of the work we do is public and community and that's great, but they're also connected by just interest. So um, like when I was starting my practice, I think I had this idea that public toilets were necessary, like that that was a necessary step for a small practice to take. But that so when I got the Maidstone project, I was like, oh, great, finally got a small public toilet. What are we going to do here? And so it's always, we're on radio, so you can't see anything. Um, but it was a refurbishment of a really old um, uh, heritage building. And then next to it, we had to put a um, disabled access toilet. It's really small, but we kind of made this really beautiful sculptural, almost little tower, I would say, um, pavilion. Yeah, it's got a green skylight apparently if you wee in there and you can see your wee, it's actually changed the colour of it. So that was an unintended kind of design by chance. Diagnostic tool. Uh-huh, I found out since. Um, but it's more whimsical in that it just kind of uses the materiality of the pavilion next door and does it in, in unexpected ways. So, yeah, I've always been interested in that too, like how can you translate something that's in the existing context and make it contemporary and also kind of, yeah, contextual. We've got these beautiful warm colours Oh, beautiful warm timbers rather, dark timber, and then this teal green that cuts through it at a horizontal level. So the bottom is dark, the top the top is teal. That was the first public toilet I saw that I thought, oh, my God, these things can be amazing. Yeah, the, that, that vinyl was really important actually. Um, it was picking up on like so basically when we went and looked at the existing heritage building, they sort of did some analysis of all the layers of paint and we discovered that back in the sort of, you know, 50s it had been painted this mint green which I kind of thought was a really beautiful thing and we found some vinyl that was kind of in the palette of this mint green Um, but of course like once it was you know six nine months later and the builders kind of ordering it he's like they're out of stock in Australia or there's only like I don't know there was like 12 square meters left but it had to be air freighted from somewhere and we were like you have to do it you have to get it because you need the vinyl you need the right color um, but I think colour is important too. Like it kind of, not just for the sake of um, always being colourful, just for the sake of being colourful, but it can help to tell a story and tell a story about that building's history. Absolutely. And your work is really colourful, really bravely colourful often. The annex is black and white, but it's often really bravely colourful and I love that and I think we need more of that in the public realm. It sort of isn't, it sort of isn't. Like I, I realise it's, if it's not colourful, it's patterned and it's, we've got some really um, neutral projects as well. I think there was a bit of grief one year because we picked up a colour award and the Juliet's Colour Awards, but we actually had only used black and white, which I know, <gasps> not right, is it? Um, listeners, my eyeballs nearly just popped out of my skull. This is an awards program for the most like brave, bold, ambitious use of colour head-to-toe colour we're talking in buildings here. Yeah, but this, but the ceiling in this project is like a very graphic kind of black and white kind of striped kind of thing. So, like, if yes, so if not colour, at least something graphic and um, patterned. And I, I, I like the sense of your eye kind of dancing around something, I think. Why do you think that's important in the public realm? Yeah, I think the public realm should have character. And I think that it's important for the buildings that we do in the public realm to be unique. Um, and 
for people to kind of love them. And I actually think a lot of people love things that have kind of pattern and colour and personality um, generally. There's obviously a place for things being subdued and within their context. So we have projects as well that are not necessarily about being loud. They can be about being peaceful. But again, I think they look to sort of pick up on their, their context and have a sense of variation. I think that sometimes we're a little bit risk averse in terms of public buildings. Like we want to design something that everybody will like. And if that means it's kind of beige colour bond and like oak veneer, I sort of think, well, then every public building ends up feeling and looking the same. And maybe it's actually better to build things that like add to this history of place. And I think unique architecture can add to a history of place. And instead of trying to please everyone, you'll end up pleasing no one with this sort of beigeism. It's actually only a Western obsession. The rest of the world has colour as part of a rich cultural expression. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, quite possibly. I don't know. But, I mean, the British, I reckon, are also into the beige, right? Possibly. Yeah. But, yeah, oh, it's yeah. Our, colon- yeah, our British colonial roots. Um, yeah, and I think it's the same too with... Um, houses and the sort of advice of potentially a real estate agent that you should do something neutral. But, yeah, I think that within um, our community spaces we can be a little bit braver. I don't think that it's also important to think about things being timeless because I think that if something is kind of beautiful and characterful, people will come to love it for that character. And it becomes timeless. Because yeah. even being of its time in that moment yeah. is one of the key ingredients in great architecture to connect with time and place. Yeah, and it's nice to do things. With. Yeah, and it's nice to have spaces in our. Um, I think it's nice to have spaces in our community that are kind of fun to occupy as well, right? Yeah, the fun and the joy is really important, especially because people's homes are so white, just whitewashed walls more than often, and that's that's fine. It's your own private realm. You can do what you like in it. But to have a, a, a vibrant, joyous place to come that's a little bit different I think is also really important for people's just life, just the way you live your daily life. But if we look towards nature, nothing is bland. Nothing is boring. Not a single bird, nor a tree, nor grass, nor sky, nothing. Nothing is colourless. Yeah, today I was actually down at a project we um, did quite a few years ago. I stopped in there to have lunch because there's a little tenancy. It's at Melbourne Uni's um, College, of the Ca- College of the Arts campus, VCI campus um, down in South Bank, um, and it's very bright and very colourful. It's the most colourful building we've ever done. It'll probably be the most colourful building I ever do. Um, no, please do more. I really love that one. <laughs> but it's it came from this observation that that whole campus is like scattered in murals and a lot of them painted by the students who occupied that space and they would like paste up posters and there was this amazing kind of Ash Keating mural that um, sort of existed near the site um, but was going to be sort of covered up by other works that were being done as part of the precinct. And so we sort of just approached this kind of infill facade work as a kind of a way of doing this civic mural um, and creating this backdrop to to the park. Anyway, when I was there today, the landscape's really starting to settle in. Um, actually, um, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre have just set up a little cafe there. It's a really good spot to go and get yummy sandwiches, everyone, and support a good cause as well. Um, but these 
plants that aspect the landscape architects have planted um, at, at, and landscape architects have designed have sort of grown and they're kind of, I know, I've forgotten that actually they designed this whole planting schedule that was like bright coloured things. And so we've got this bright building and this bright landscape and they're starting to kind of talk to each other. And yeah, exactly. So often when we think, oh, something should be recessive within its landscape, we're thinking of a landscape as kind of browns and muted greens. But actually, like a lot of landscapes are not like that at all. They can be really bright and beautiful and colourful and fun as well. Absolutely. Mm. And it's also all well, what gets me is when people, oh, I want to make it look like timber. So they make it brown. Uh, the Australian bush is black. I do a lot of adventure sport and hiking and road gaining. Our trees are dark. Yeah, right. They, they read and appear very dark when you're walking through the landscape as dark silhouettes near charcoal, and especially yeah. when a bushfire comes through, which is part of the just the regenerative process of that landscape as well. I, I'm really keen to ask though because listeners may have gathered over the last 19 weeks, slowly picked up that I'm a lover of colour and I don't think we should shy away from it. And it also doesn't prevent... In fact, in my opinion, it enhances a building's ability to fit into its context and to mean something. And it also doesn't prevent it from being sustainable or any other technologies or any other functions we want to integrate. So I wonder how do you advocate for colour for your designs when you're working with client groups? Can I expand this to also be about pattern and texture and all those things Please. as well? Okay. All those good things. Yeah. I think I I think that for me, if I can tell the client a good story, that's always how you can get some good architecture to happen. So um, I think often it's about telling a little bit of a tale. I'll, maybe I'll tell you a bit of a tale about a project. It was probably the first public project we, we did, which is this little um, annex at the Art Gallery in Ballarat. It's the black and white one, so it's not colourful at all, but it's quite like graphically strong. And so... Often I think if you're doing a project for an art gallery, there's an expectation that you're going to do like white plasterboard interiors, right? It's just going to be a really neutral box that can accommodate anything. Um, but we sort of did all these kind of um, uh, research into the context of the place and we started to talk about actually instead of this just being kind of a mute function room that's kind of really um, subdued and um, I guess without personality, how can this adopt some of the things that Ballarat already has. And Ballarat has all these really strange, quirky public buildings. So um, bandstands that have like really top-heavy um, hats and sit on spindly legs and columns and um, town halls that are kind of, you know, um, ornate in their facades and these sort of back-of-house spaces where, you know, there's lots of sawtooth roofs if you go climbing around the laneways of Ballarat and behind all the grand facades. And they're these timberline buildings with you know, um, lots of uh, weatherboards that, you know, angle in all sorts of directions. And we took all of those references together and the lining of the building is this sort of timber and it varies in terms of its um, pattern by, and it allows for an acoustic response and, um, you know, it integrates lighting and um, the, the pattern also kind of conceals ventilation. So it's kind of like by stealth you get, the client on board by saying, well, if we do a plasterboard wall, you're going to see the lights stuck on it and the air conditioning ventilation and it won't have the material response of place. And then we kind of, you know, also designed these doors so you could transform this very internal brief, which was originally just an internal room, to opening up to the plaza and becoming a bandstand as well. 
And so then, you know, we were able to hide all sorts of kind of um, paraphernalia you would need for, for to, to operate on a, as a sort of stage in that. And so, yeah, like tell a story, take the client with you, merge the kind of whimsy and the practical. Go, go on the journey as I well. Think so. And I think most people also love to hear those stories and love to hear those details of, of how it comes together. We shouldn't be keeping it all in our heads. And that's sort of the point of this show as well. But I love the annex. That that project has actually been such a precedent reference for me, and as a especially in my, in my early days of my career, coming through young designer, doing a lot of public work, a lot of council work, to constantly referring back to the annex. So I'm very much a fan girl, Susanna, on 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 that one, and that brings me to the idea of doing these really sharp, smart, innovative good contemporary architecture extensions in a heritage context because that gets people clutching their pearls. Folks are terrified. Oh, my God, you're going to ruin my heritage town. It's Ballarat, a lot of history, a lot of architecture, a lot of period architecture, so much attachment to that. And people have that reaction to many buildings, even within their own community. So it's even an extension of what we're saying about colour, of this fear of something new. How do you how do you take people on that journey and how is your work engaged with the new extensions in the heritage? Yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't have really thought at the beginning of my career that I would have been a person who did heritage projects, but I actually really quite like them. And we've done a bunch of them now on um, quite a few of them on sort of um, state heritage registered sites, which the um, Art Gallery in Ballarat was, project at the campus in VCA we were talking about before is um, City of Melbourne Heritage listed and that's an adaptation as well. Um, I I think that there's a real joy in having existing fabric actually and how you alter it um, and I like the idea that we are reusing old building stock um, and there's something kind of inherently sustainable and really interesting about that but I also just like it from a design point of view too. It kind of gives you something to riff off and it kind of gives you something to play with. I think a lot of our heritage buildings too, they're a bit overlooked, like we don't really necessarily look at them. So for me, the idea that um, a an adaptation to those buildings needs to be recessive isn't necessarily always the right response. I actually think sometimes something that exaggerates and makes you pay attention to the things that are so beautiful and unique and distinct about that building is actually great. So... Um, the Annex project, it was a bit of a lucky break in a way, but we definitely won it through a sort of um, EOI process that was also an interview process. And I think in that interview, we sort of pitched this idea that the building would respond to its context um, by sort of mirroring some of the things that were already happening there. I already spoke about the material response, but in terms of its planning, um, it sort of works with the orthogonal grid of the building that's sort of sitting on the street and it also kind of works with this skewed alignment of this other kind of um, uh, heritage building behind and it sort of plays with roof forms. And There are were, many ways to respond to yeah. the existing. It this. sits within it. It looks totally new but it sits within its context and it kind of talks to it. So I, yeah, I think it's kind of joyful if you can get those things to happen and be, yeah, 
I like the raking geometry of it as well, the pop-up and the skylight and how it sort of just reaches out to you across the piazza. And Mm. I often drive past it when I go rock climbing and I say, oh, hello, Annex, because it reaches out to the street. It reaches out to the public. The building itself welcomes people in, especially when those glass doors are open. And it offers a dynamism. There's an energy to it. So when we think about how energetic Ballarat used to be, during the gold rush and the epicenter of Victoria's economy. And then you have this new energetic extension. It brings new life. Like you say, instead of being recessive, instead of just doing something super polite so you don't notice it, what happens to your beloved building? It disappears. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a sort of a balance that needs to happen when you're sort of looking at these things. Um, We, you know, we picked up a heritage award quite recently for an alteration at um, a primary school in Albert Park. Um, you know, it's and it's much more um, recessive in the way that it sort of responds to things. But again, um, the cladding on that facade is really patterned and kind of picks up on the kind of brickwork of the building next door. All the alterations and additions are sort of at the back and we're about kind of adding legibility too. So it had it suffered. Like it, it was this heritage-listed building but it had suffered from like a series of really kind of uninspiring additions and alterations that had happened over the 150 years that it had been there. Like a botched plastic surgery. Yeah, it's just like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and like each individual move is probably kind of insignificant but I think that you can run the risk too of doing that. So it's worth making a bigger gesture I think sometimes to just um, – it might be about, you know, changing the way you enter a building or changing the way that, um, you know – the space relates to something new. Yeah. And being brave about it. Are there any big ideas you find yourself returning to in the work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was actually thinking this because I knew you were going to ask this question about the initial um, memory and I'm always trying to do a tower, which is kind of funny. So, Like a skyscraper? No, no, no. But, I mean, I would like to one day, um, but like little towers. So I... I, I think I really like the idea of civic buildings having identity and presence within the places where they are. And so, for instance, the little toilet we were talking about before, it's much taller than it needs to be. Like it's like... It is. It's quite but it re- pointy. Yeah, but it reaches the, the, the roof. It, it matches the sort of ridge line of the building next to it. And so that's why. And there's a skylight at the top. So it's kind of this beautiful, like it's like being inside of a skylight going to the bathroom, but it's like a little mini tower. I've done a few feasibility studies that have little little, um, little towers and turrets and things like that in them as well. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, don't know. There's something in that. So, something something in that search. Yeah, well, and <laughs> pattern I think as well. And we, we've just – you start to develop kind of languages too. Like I can see the way we've used timber, um, you know, as a facade and a lining material across many projects – um, they don't look the same, but there's this kind of idea of using different patterns and using different sizes and playing with that. Um, yeah, and then I think also just an approach to programming. Um, so I always look for opportunities with a brief to go, how can it do a bit more? Um, if that's the bare minimum of what has been asked and maybe it's in an event space, how can it actually kind of work for the community in other ways as well? I think that's amazing if you can add that to public architecture. That's what great architecture is. I don't know about that, but it's like you're going to spend the money anyway, so why not get more bang for your buck by doing a building that can do more than one thing? And so we work really hard to try to do that with 
um, even some really small projects. We're doing some toilets for the um, for a school in Ballarat and a school in Malmesbury at the moment. And for both of those um, toilets, we are trying to get them to also be an outdoor learning space. Um, and so it sounds kind of weird, but it's just by extending the kind of canopy and kind of orienting it towards the sort of adjacent landscape. And then it's like adding something really great and fun for the school. So that's the powerful value add of good architecture. That's what architects do. That's actually a brief as a profession really to bring additional value to our client, whether it's helping spaces be utilised better, helping you get more storage, helping you get whatever your needs are. That's actually our job. We're not just A plus B. We're trying to get make it better as much as possible. Yeah, and sometimes you can add by taking away too. So on one of those projects, it's an alteration of an existing school building and we've effectively reduced the footprint of the building in order to create this sort of indoor-outdoor space because they didn't need all of this because of the, the existing bathrooms and amenities were really inefficiently laid out. They had a lot of storage space they weren't using. So... Um, yeah, it's kind of trying to um, find value in the things we do. And, yeah, public architecture is really fun. It's also much healthier. Like you found a creative solution that's not cost anyone more, but you're making it healthier for the students, especially with our ongoing pandemic, to have fresh air, to have an outdoor learning opportunity. Yeah, I mean schools are really interesting too because they've changed so much over time, right? So like the... The the, The pedagogical models are, are wild. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, there's opportunities to do that. And that's a client group as well who are really interested in, in that. I think clients, in my experience for us, when we've had really successful projects, clients are part of it. You know, they, they get on board and they're really open to these ideas. And so I do think the procurement and the kind of client, um, part of community and public architecture is a really important thing. You've mentioned my favorite word, Susanna. What procurement or client? Procurement. Procurement. (laughs) it's very important to get that right from from the moment that someone decides that they need a real building and that's the solution to whatever problem or need they have as we know through public work if they if that process isn't done right and all the ducks aren't in a row appropriately and the right decisions are made and it's not collaborative enough those outcomes just can't be delivered yes it's a tricky thing procurement for public work um, and I, I don't have a clear answer on what I think is the best approach. I know when I started my practice, I thought that, I mean, you don't, you're also limited as a small, younger practice. So I'm sort of 15 years down the track now and I can kind of win work because I've already done work or something like that. But I guess at the beginning, you can't do that. So I think that we do need to think about how we open up opportunities for smaller practices to do more public work. There's a lot of really talented people out there who are working in housing and they're doing a great job of housing, but they could also do a really good job on some of the um, kind of community buildings that we have as well. I used to think competitions were the answer and so really at the beginning of my kind of um, career, we've just lost the lights in the studio. Oh, they're they're back. Yeah. Um, Sound engineers fixed that up. Sorry, everyone. Lighting engineer as well. Um, Live radio for you. At the beginning of like my career, so we, you know, Nick and I were giving um, competitions a go, and we had a bit of success with that. But that's a really um, unsustainable model. 
yeah, you invest so much time in that and that's not realistic as a way to procure small buildings. And the opportunities for small practices are immense. If they get those opportunities to do public buildings, they're probably going to approach them with a whole lot of innovation and a whole lot of enthusiasm and do all the things we've just been talking about in terms of giving them identity and making them multi-purpose and giving them, you know, the opportunity to do more than just the brief. In the 80s and 90s, we were very good at giving younger emerging practices and emerging designers a go and involving them in public work and setting up the procurement so that they could happen and could start. That's how ARM did the most incredible National Museum of Australia and it springboarded their their practice and it became the practice they are today as a result of that project. And it was also an alliance, which is why I firmly believe that building is amazing because mm-hmm. the procurement model allowed it to be so. And for our listeners, an alliance, without oversimplifying it, is a different way of bringing really, really big buildings into existence that is collaborative. So from the start of the process, the builder, the client, project managers, all the people involved, all the whole team are actually in the room together working as one team. And the, they're contractually not allowed to be adversarial. They have to have, they're working towards shared goals, shared rewards for success, but they can't be combative. So that that collaboration is really, has to be our next frontier in getting good outcomes, especially with the challenges that the, the profession is facing, construction industry is facing, that from a climate perspective that um, we're facing in terms of the availability of resources. We really can't keep doing things the same old way. But I want to ask you, have you ever been involved in any sort of ECIs or early contractor involvement projects at all or has really the bulk of your work been traditional so far? We do have a mix. Like Lately we've definitely um, been working on a few collaborations with bigger practices. So when you're talking about the collaboration work, I think it's really important. Um, and we've had super positive experiences doing that where we're contributing um, – to like a small civic building within a precinct or um, to sort of public realm elements within kind of like um, public projects. And I have found that super rewarding. And so um, that's been working sort of directly for government um, organisations and then also sort of developer-led bids um, as well. So that's something we've got into a bit more in the last few years. And I think there's been a real shift actually, particularly with some of the bigger projects that different um, – government organisations or City of Melbourne or other people have been organising NGV competition, for instance, as well, where there's a, uh, there was a desire to kind of get firms to team up and have a mix of kind of practice scales within a kind of single bid. And there's pros and cons to that. Um, but I think generally that's a positive step. Um, but I think maybe I, I sort of would love to see just even some of the simpler kind of projects that are out there, and there's a lot of them, just being easier for practices to win. Um, don't know exactly what the best model for that is but I think it's probably just as simple as saying hey if this is like a under one million dollar project for a council we can actually shift our risk matrix a little bit and take on somebody who's maybe proven that they can do a building that's a different type in a different sector or something like that Um, and maybe you'll get some really interesting um, community architecture out of it. I hope so too. I hope so. I hope to see something really exciting come through in that way, especially um, with, with – you have a quite a young team that, that you lead. What's 
what's it like? Um, what's this collaboration like at Cell by Waldron? Well, Waldron by Cell. Uh, we've got, um, yeah, I've got a really beautiful team that um, have been with me. Um, I think Jack is probably coming up to seven years, maybe even, yeah, I think. Um, maybe even eight. I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, about uh, they're great. Um, our whole practice is kind of changed, I guess. Like for me, when I first started the practice, it was with my um, partner Nick, and we had a very close collaboration. You know, as the X in the name kind of indicates, the by was you know just this idea that we were always kind of sharing ideas and kind of pitching different points of view to each other. And then as we sort of started to get staff, that was kind of important to include them in that conversation. Kind of probably comes from me being chronically indecisive as well. So I like to kind of like, you know, open open up the opportunities for when you're making a decision. Um, my partner Nick died around six and a half years ago. So is my business partner and my personal partner and my, my kid's dad. And so that was a real shift in the practice too where I suddenly was like, oh, okay, I'm a solo female running what had already sort of, you know, got a few runs on the board, practice that was basically public work. Um, And was that a kind of thing I could maintain and was that a thing I could do and how could I stay involved in the industry? And it was kind of confronting. And actually, if you pull a team around you and you kind of tell them that you want them to step up and you want them to collaborate – um, and you want them to work together to kind of problem solve, um, it actually I think can be a form of um, – It's the collaboration is actually a way of allowing different people to take place. So I, I've really got into this model more and more over the last – Empower your people. Years. Yeah, and like it changes the model of architecture too. Like I was definitely a slave to architecture when I began my practice. I worked really long hours. I think some of that is just the startup phase – and kind of you've got to do a little bit of it. Um, but now I kind of pride myself and I hopefully my team like this as well of just kind of generally getting things done in the hours in which we need to get things done and being really efficient and trying to be kind of a bit joyful and op- opportunistic about how we, we work together. So I wouldn't have it any other way. Like um, we're, we're seven of us at the moment and we've sort of fluctuated up and down a little bit but we're relatively stable and it's a nice scale in that it allows us to do really small projects and flex up to do bigger projects as well. So I think at the moment in the practice we've got like a playground that we're doing for the VSBA that's sort of $80,000 will be our smallest project and we've got... Is it going to be a tower? <laughs> it's not. It's not. 80000 isn't very much, Alana. You can't afford a tower for that. No, no. <laughs> I know you can't afford the playground tower. You've got a toy tower. There's definitely some, yeah, we should work on that. And then, yeah, up to like we've got a project on site that was out this morning, um, which is really fun kind of depot for a cemetery. That's sort of 20 million and we're doing some concept designs for things even bigger than that. So that's a kind of a great, fantastic kind of scale of practice, I think. I really like it. And all really important work that the people interface with and enjoy and use and come in contact with closely as well. One more practice question because I've actually had members of the profession anonymously messaging me over the last few weeks and months wondering what was it like to practice during the GFC? And you started your practice in 2007, a year later, GFC. What what were those years like? 
So in hindsight, that is why my practice exists. Um, I was working, I'd worked at OMA in Rotterdam. Um, Nick had moved to London. I decided to go and join him. I was working in a practice and during 2007, I think they had a week where they lost like three or four projects, reasonable size projects in the office and the directors got everybody together and sort of started talking about how, um, do anyone want to take leave, leave without pay? Do anyone want to go on a giant holiday around the world? Like obviously it was quite, um, uh, yeah, it was tough times. I decided I'd take some leave without pay and I ended up doing an architecture competition for a museum in China and then we got shortlisted in the final four um, and ended up like flying to China a few times and presenting this project and um, we lost, which was disappointing but we got a bit of cash and that also gave Nick and I the kind of sense that oh we should actually kind of give it a shot right and so we came back to Australia in 2008 and there was all this stimulus work happening like in the um, probably Department of Education in particular well we couldn't get any of it because we didn't have any experience so we were like well we want to kind of capitalize on this and we sat around not doing much at all and we ended up teaching so um, I knew a few people had studied at RMIT and I knew a few people um, there and they kind of got us in and we ended up teaching a bunch of design studios. And so those years were actually very, very quiet. Um, we finally finished our first project in 2011. So between that kind of initial competition in 2007 and 2011, four years, um, we had very little built work and we were just really teaching and refining the kind of way that we would think about design. So I think actually without that thinking time and possibly without the competition and and a little bit of cash momentum and a little bit of kind of excitement about starting my own practice or starting our own practice as well, it might not have happened. So thank you, GFC, but it's hard, I think. Downturns are hard. Yeah. Sounds like it was really the procurement process there that prevented you from entering and being being able to have your first built project for a, quite a long time? A little bit, yeah. It's really hard when you come back. I think that we we arrived, we just had no runs on the board. Um, but also we just didn't let it deter us. Potentially we were quite lucky, but we just kept doing open EOIs and giving it a crack. And so I'm not sure that that always works out for everyone. Um but we did a bit of that and we did competitions and we did teaching and so we just kind of had this mix of um, testing ideas, thinking about design, trying to win a real project and I think, yeah, so simultaneously doing the really large-scale, you know, international competition and then also kind of trying to win a public toilet. <laughs> you have to be humble as an architect. You have to say that the public toilet's important. Which it is. It's a really fun typology, but that's, in my opinion, not everyone thinks so. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I hate the exolus. Like, I think all the public toilets should be designed things, like, you know, the automatic flushing ones. They're not, they're not great. Um, yeah, it's massive. That's a massive opportunity for um, architects. I feel like Sydney's historically, New South Wales has probably done the public toilet commissioning a little bit better than us. Um, but, yeah, like, there's a really beautiful little public toilet in the St Kilda Botanical Gardens near where I live. It's like a wood marsh. I think it was one of their earliest kind of projects. It's a little sandstone thing with a really um, beautiful kind of inflected steel, black steel roof. And it sits on these um, spindly columns. 
And that would be, you know, 30 years old now, maybe more, and it's still sitting there. And it's a really nice piece of like civic infrastructure. It's great. It's so funny how much people love public toilets and how passionate they are and how often we come back to this topic on this show, even though we've already done a full episode on public toilets. Listeners, you can get back onto that one that was with Mitch Carter. It was really great. But it's, it's, it's so funny because it's just this important moment of the human condition that we can't avoid and everyone does it. So everyone needs one. Everyone needs one. They're everywhere and they, can't, they aren't always as delightful as you want them to be. Um, but there's other building types as well that I think like nearly every community's got like sports pavilions and kind of different types of community spaces and libraries and I guess some of those we more typically engage architects but also some of those buildings can be better than they are. So, yeah. I want to zoom forward from the, the, those beginnings and thank you for sharing the, those earnest initial truths and how the practice started. I think it's really important for people to hear at, at the moment um, and practitioners across a lot of firms that are wondering what what's ahead. But I want to talk about one of your recent award-winning projects, the Joyce Chapel Bridge. Our most uncolourful project. But it's got a lot of texture. <laughs> it has a huge amount of texture. And it's yeah. got an interesting large uh, semicircular moon crescent form that, yeah. that's come through. And that's I, w- I want to ask a question. Does it's, a common, it's quite a spiritual project. It's in a, started in, a, in the cemetery, is that right? And I wonder, does an architect have to be spiritual or religious or have that sort of background in order to do contemplative or spiritual work? Oh, that's such a interesting question um not religious I I think that um we're all here we all live and we're all going to die so cemeteries are actually really interesting non-denominational spaces particularly now modern day cemeteries are you know um historically they were divided into different sectors for different um religious groups and you can still have areas like that. But um, they've also shifted in terms of just becoming more spaces for commemorating people's lives. Um, I actually do quite a – at the moment I've got quite a series of projects that I'm doing with the Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust. We're doing um, everything from sort of workplaces and sort of a depot with them to the bridge, which we completed. We've got a gatehouse that we've designed that should get built in the next couple of years. And we even designed a um, cremation pole recently which is a different form of um another tower yeah little it is a mini tower but it's also it was mostly with claire martin from oculus so yeah i'm blaming her but um it so it's really they're very interesting projects i'm not religious at all um but i do have i was speaking before about my partner so i do have i guess um an pretty, empathy yeah definitely right um a pretty first-hand kind of um level of kind of yeah empathy I guess with the idea that these places need to be a bit of respite for people um but also they need to like do different things for different people like I've been to the cemetery and seen a bunch of 20 30 year old blokes sitting around somebody's grave drinking beers and I think that's great right and I've seen people sitting on a chair knitting next to probably the grave of their partner and I've seen other people in the cemetery having a picnic and I think all of those are really valid ways to occupy um, those spaces. Uh, Greater Metropolitan Cemeteries Trust, our client, they're really interested also in the use of some of these public spaces, these these memorial parks, 
for public recreation. So you can go for, you know, they want to encourage people to go for a jog through the cemetery in the morning or to use it um, after hours or, you know, on the weekends. It's um, the, the, the cemetery we've been doing most of the work in is um, Faulkner, which is where the bridge is, and then also Northern Memorial Park, which is adjacent. They are in Moreland um, and there's a real lack of public space in that um, municipality actually, sort of one of the lowest levels of public space um, in um, Melbourne in terms of um, geography. So you've got this, but you've got this huge cemetery that's kind of full of beautiful landscapes, huge amounts of money are put into maintaining it. And so there's, you know, there's interesting and challenging things working for a client like that. Wow. So, so great. Yeah. So the bridge was just like this funny little project that came our way. They actually, we'd been working with them already, but they called us up and said, oh, we're looking to, you know, get some different architects to bid on a bridge. I was like, oh, we don't really do bridges. We've never done a bridge. And they were like, but could you? I was like, I guess so. We'll give it a go. And I love bridges now. So we're doing another one with them actually at the moment. It'll be quite different. Um, but this bridge connected basically the car park and the chapel and it was replacing a bridge that had got to the end of its life. It was um, a sort of part of the original master plan, which is sort of in the – I'm trying not to do archi-speak, but there was a movement of architecture in the early 19th century called the Garden City Movement. And so Faulkner Cemetery is based around all of those ideals of like merging kind of um, very naturalistic ideas around landscape. So this bridge actually had plants that grew across it. So it was, you know, almost 100 oh, – probably built in 1920 um, and it had banksias that grew along the top of it and it was like made of stone and it had this circular col- like concrete culvert that ran through the bottom of it. But it had also had concrete cancer was falling apart, didn't meet Melbourne Water's kind of new guidelines which are kind of you can't put culverts in the middle of a creek because it – gets branches caught in it and all the things. And so we were sort of tasked with this very interesting challenge of doing something that was sympathetic to this heritage-listed context, doing something that would be um, like a beautiful kind of place of respite for people and also it's like making sure when you arrive for a funeral and you're stressed that it was really clear and easy, you park the car and know where you had to go. So it's a wayfinding device as well. Very important. Again, architecture for some of the most human but most difficult moments in people's lives. Mm. We've had a text come in from Mitch. He says, your practice has a lot of very impressive buildings under its belt. The University of Melbourne end of trip facilities mentioned earlier is a standout for me. I also love how many times it's been used as a backdrop by ABC News, a unique measure of success for a beautiful public architecture. Reflecting on the work of your practice, what do you think your most successful project is? Oh, thanks, Mitch. I I did have a family member send me a text message a few weeks ago saying you should get royalties every time the ABC use your building as a backdrop. Um, but favourites, like the annex at Ballarat is close to my heart um, because I feel that it was a really pivotal moment for our practice. Like it allowed us to, we, won, we picked up a few awards, um, but it was also like, it just felt like if we hadn't done that project, I don't know where things would have gone. Um, but I kind of love different things about different projects and the the colour of VCA campus, Ender Trip, is also, I mean, it's it's 
kind of almost, for me, I'm amazed that we got away with it. So in a different way, it's not so much the shock that we were able to achieve that project, but we did take the client on quite a kind of, you know, journey. I want us to they get They trusted to, us. Yeah. yeah. It is all about trust. I want us to come to a place as, as the public where we don't have to get away with colourful things where we actually demand exciting and colourful architecture from our taxpayer money. That is funny that I'm excusing it, isn't it? I'm like, we got away with it. We yeah, managed a bit. to sneak it through. Um, Shouldn't be sneaky, I don't think. We've had another question come in from one of our favourite regulars, which is Hamish from Adelaide. You talked about the freedom that the GFC allowed for introspective and explorative works. How have you managed to keep that going while running a business and the financial and time constraints that comes with it? That is a very good question and it's very tricky to get that balance right. Um, Today I turned down a project because it would suck up too much of my time and it wasn't going to be a joyful thing to do. So I think sometimes you do have to try to carve out um, a space for the type of work that you want to do. And we've kind of been lucky to get opportunities that are like that. But I think I've got a bit of a long admin to-do list. I do kind of sometimes push those things aside. You do actually have to make time for designing. And it's really easy in the kind of mix of it. I don't always get it right. I definitely have weeks where I'm like, where was the design time and where was the thinking time? But I think it's actually kind of a bit of a choice and collaborate. So I I definitely don't see um, the thinking and the designing and the thought processes mine solely. I want to share that with my team. So we have just like little things like every project in our office, we have a WhatsApp group and we just share images. And that might be that one person sees something on ArcDaily that they think is a really good precinct for that project and they post it in there. And it's not just the people working on the project either. It's like um, any everyone on our team. It's a small team so we can do this. And it's just like a really quick way too of in a time-constrained environment being able to sort of sketch things out or think about things really quickly and I love that. That's really fantastic and it's very important to find time for creativity. I find myself, I oil paint, but I find myself longing for it and some some days it's like you just cannot get time. It's tricky, right? And also like I think I've got a friend, not an architect, but she's um, – was talking to me recently about the challenges of like being a mother and finding time to be creative as well or being a parent and trying to find. There are so many different kind of things we're juggling in our lives. So, yeah, it's not easy. Um, but um, And you do have to run a good business as well because if you don't make that stack up, then you can't do the other things. And you can't keep doing architecture. Like I feel it. like I haven't given our Adelaide listener a very clear answer on that one. He's, yeah. Tricky. No, I, I think you, you're you saying that it's a hard balance that we have to look for as with all creative things and try and find prioritise and find inspiration. And, yeah. And quarantine the time for that. Yeah, and public architecture is nice as a challenge anyway because I always feel like it's 50% pragmatic and 50% kind of, you know, or maybe not even 50%, but if you try to keep it at 50% design and interest and kind of all those things then it's – it, it's a balance between kind of coming up with practical, functional things and kind of trying to do design-driven things. So maybe. Why do you think it's important for architects to stay passionate about public work, stay motivated for public work 
even though the procurement and the ability to actually win that work is quite difficult. And at the same time, why should our clients be invested in public work? Well, it's taxpayer money, so we need to be like building things that are here for a long time, right? So we should be building things that are worth it. Um, so that's the client client side for me. Um, like there's some really great public projects around and if everybody kind of loves them, they kind of stand the test of time. Um, in terms of what was the second part of the question? Like why do – I guess I'm just wondering to hear from your perspective on the importance of public work. Yeah, no, I mean I, I've definitely – when I started my practice I wanted to do public work because – you can visit it and I feel like it has a real and tangible benefit to the community more broadly. Like I I guess I didn't have the opportunity at the beginning of my practice to get a commission from a um, family member or a friend in the same way that maybe some other people do and that's totally fine if that's what comes your way. But I also love the idea that most of the buildings I've done you can go and kind of visit them, right? There's something quite nice about that as well. And a lot of... Um, architects who do amazing houses, I love looking at those and I love kind of the visual experience of them through publication, but I can't experience them. No. So I think it's really important because the majority of us are not going to be living in amazingly well-architect-designed houses. That's possibly another conversation and that maybe that's disappointing, but it's the reality. And so our public spaces are really important from that point of view too because they're open and equitable and they should be inclusive and do all of these things and also be joyful and interesting. And, and beautiful. Like, I think so. Beauty is a human right. It's dysfunctional and depressing to be in a public realm that isn't beautiful. Yeah, I reckon we owe it to like the generations that follow us as well to leave a little bit of a legacy, spend the money on the, these projects as wisely as we can and um, build things that people love now, and that's just, and then not try to please everybody. Back to what we said before, so because um, they do tricky. come around. Mm-hmm. Fed Square, very provocative. Mm-hmm. Still very provocative. Mm-hmm. Well loved though, well used, and a heritage overlay. Yeah, I yes, listed. I mean, one of my favourite buildings actually around St Kilda again is the St Kilda Library, which I can't remember who the original architect was, um, Enrico Tagliatti, I yes. think. Is that right? Yeah. And that's an amazing base, that building. Like it's got these beautiful kind of concrete work and these timber soffits and this kind of, you know, hat, hatted roof. Looks like a spaceship. But also the ARM edition that was done in the probably 80s, 90s, also amazing, kind of fun. Like this kind of everyone, it's got a facade that's like a book that kind of opens out. It's a literal it's in, book. It's a literal book. It's got a big window where the picture would be. But it's actually kind of great. It's in bluestone. It's building kind of lasting materials it actually has a really nice relationship, I think, to the kind of concrete in the original. So it's those, those that, that building is still there. It's getting used every day and that's like two good architects that have, you know, done that and I, I think it's got a really strong identity. So Build upon each other, this multi-decadal collaboration. Yeah, and also I think that for me I like it too that it's an alteration and addition. Like I just think that we should view our cities in that way too. They're like an accretion of layers over time and each layer is going to add something to your understanding of the past but also kind of your understanding of your place and your community as it changes. So kind of nice if we can build cities that are like that rather than just saying, hey, stop, no, don't touch and put a kind of a recessive black box on that thing because that was built 150 years ago and this thing's 
kind of never going to be as good as that. Of course it can be. We can build really beautiful new contemporary things. Let's keep our progress and future thinking hat on, which Mm. is an excellent segue into my last question because we need to wrap up. Okay. I want to ask, what gives you hope? Oh, the hope. Well, I'm going to go back to where you started at the beginning. This is a really important week um, for um, Indigenous recognition. I'm going to be voting yes. I know there's people I love and adore who probably won't be voting yes and I want them to kind of have a conversation with me Um, and I want all of our listeners to think about how this is a small thing that we can do that would have lasting impact and change. I really been watching all these different channels and I liked um, the, the Briggs thing that like no is now and the status quo of what we have at the moment in terms of Indigenous disadvantage and outcomes in education and health it's really inadequate and it's not okay and I think um, this is a small change. So I feel hopeful that um, Australians might recognise that but I think the next generation in particular, like I talked to my daughter about this, she's eight, her school's amazing, um, actually goes to the same school as your listener from last week, Christine's kids, and um, they teach their, that, you know, she's eight years old and she's learning about gender and sexism and um, the environment and um, the rights of Indigenous people and all of these things in a way that for her it just feels like oh, how could these um equalities not just be the obvious way that the world works so um really excited it's quite interesting being a parent and seeing a different generation come through and thinking maybe they will overcome some of the things yeah children are the hope and our future but we can all just get on board with that as well right just have a little bit of um um yeah it'd be nice if we can all approach things like with less fear and less um hesitation like that's what kids do, right? They just look at it and they see it and they go. It's fair income. It's pretty straightforward. Totally. Yes, a rare nation-defining once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime moment and we shouldn't give in to fear because that's what they want. That, that's what people who want to hold this country back want. They want everyone to be afraid. Yeah, so this week that's my answer. Hope for this weekend. Let's see how it goes. Get Wonderful. on board. Vote yes, everyone. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Susanna. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Radio Karam. Karam.